Blog Talk Radio. And now, Geico Saving Stories. Russell Burton closed his laptop, having just switched his car insurance to Geico. He didn't think much of it until... Savings were everywhere. My pockets, uh, wallet, bank accounts. It was like the savings were following me. Following, indeed. All because of an innocent 15 minutes on Geico.com. I feel like I'm never alone. Geico. Spend 15 minutes and 15% or more in savings could be following you. K-I-R-P Radio!
Good evening. You're listening to the KIRP. KIRP stands for keeping it real with Pajumela, if by chance you did not know that. Tonight we'll be talking about Iran, uh, the United States, foreign policy of the United States. And if you read a little bit about the teaser in the show, you know what I said, basically. The question was really why does the U.S. policy remain the same regardless of who occupies the White House, regardless of who occupies Congress? Once again, all the big issues are not partisan issues. Yes, there are differences between differences in rhetoric, not in substance, not in reality. That's why if you look at defense spending, it doesn't change. If you look at the growth of the welfare state, it doesn't change. It increases, not both increase. Let me correct myself. Excuse me. Both defense spending and welfare spending increase. And some people talk about the warfare uh, welfare state. That increases regardless of who's in power. The, uh, the rhetoric, the words are different. Policy remains the same. If you followed the latest story in the news, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of attention given to Iran uh, based upon really two events. Number one, Iran was blamed by the United States for attacking a ship uh, tanker in uh, in the Strait of Hormuz and uh, or rather in the Gulf and the evidence that the U.S. has presented is, once again, non-evidence. As a matter of fact, many international sources around the world have said that they do not believe there was proof that these were Iranian mines that caused the attack on the tanker. As a matter of fact, the eyewitnesses there, it was a Japanese captain of the ship, said, no, no, it was, wasn't mines. It was something coming in from the sky. It was like it was missiles, something that was shot in. So the U.S. would apparently was apparently attempting to provoke uh, military action against Iran by painting Iran, portraying Iran, misrepresenting Iran as the aggressor. It looked like a classic false flag. What's, what's a false flag attack? A false flag attack comes from the idea that if you were involved or you wanted to be involved in a military conflict, war or short of war with your enemy, and your enemy, real or perceived, wasn't willing to basically make the first move, you would then take some of your own men and you would you would cover them in the flag of the enemy and attack yourself. Therefore, you have a false flag attack. And I've said words was uh were behind the nine eleven attacks. Uh I'm not gonna get into that tonight. Uh I've discussed that before. There's a lot of information information out there. You go to AE nine eleven truth dot org, architects and engineers nine eleven truth. And you find out a lot of things that were uh complete fabrications about nine eleven. For example, uh three buildings not two were destroyed on nine eleven in New York City. 
One was World Trade Center 7, not just the Twin Towers. World Trade Center 7 was a 47-story tall building that collapsed at free fall speed around 5 p.m. night, hours after the towers came down, and no plane ever hit World Trade Center 7. Jet fuel uh, is not hot enough to melt steel. There was molten steel at the base of the towers for well over a month after 9-11. So whatever caused the towers down was not the jet fuel. The idea of a pancake collapse. You get pancakes at IHOP. There was no pancake collapse that day. It was a highly sophisticated controlled demolition. In any case, that was that was part one of the current hostilities with Iran back on that uh, on that ship, uh, that uh, that oil tanker that uh, was not caused by Iranian mines. So then phase two is that the the Iranians shot down a uh, very U.S. drone. The U.S. maintains it was in an international airspace. The Iranians say, I believe, was about four miles inside their borders. The way the story goes, Trump had an attack planned, uh, signed, sealed, and almost delivered. And then uh, the way Drudge described it, Matt Drudge, is that you know, Trump withdrew or pulled out. Trump pulled out. And uh, the statement given by the Donald, by President Donald J. Trump, who last month I affectionately, affectionately referred to as and very logical, very moral. And he said, he asked how many Iranians would die if they uh, did the strike that had been written up, the the plans that were written up. And uh, some advisors had said, some of the Pentagon evidently said, but maybe 150 civilians. And then Trump claims, he said, again, you never know with anyone in Washington. You never know what they're saying. But that's the way the story goes. Trump said, no, it would be disproportionately wrong would be the response would be too uh, would be too grave for what had happened, and of course, uh, as far as the tanker, nothing did happen from Iran, because the eyewitnesses there, as well as people around the world, have said no evidence Iran did it. There was no evidence it was mines. Period. It was some type of aerial attack, bombs or missiles or something like that. So we had the attack on the tanker, and then we had the Iranians shoot down an expensive U.S. drone. For years, the United States has been attempting to provocateur, or I'd say engage Iran in some type of war. Now, I've said before, I'll say again, voting is largely largely fake. No, you can vote. That, That part's real, but voting is the illusion of choice. John Whitehead, uh, a real civil libertarian, has said, you know, he calls voting the illusion of participation. I prefer the phrase illusion of choice to participation because in voting you do participate. What's the illusion? The illusion is that there's a real choice when the same policies continue. Particularly when we're talking about D.C. or District of Criminals, particularly when we're talking about federal offices, Congress, and uh, the President, El Presidente. And, of course, the U.S. President has been uh, has morphed into uh, basically a dictator. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess you could credit Lincoln with the beginning of that, with the illegal invasion of uh, 
of the South or of uh, the illegal war of northern aggression. But the president, the Austrian has become a dictator. So for a long time, as I said, the U.S. has been attempting to either uh, entice attack the U.S. or just outright come up with a come up with some means, some reason, some basis to attack Iran. It's been like that for years. We'll break down a video in a few moments. To back up, to give some uh, recent uh, historical context to the Iranian situation, how the U.S., particularly U.S. citizens, you Iran. Consider the Iranian hostage crisis. That's really that's prominent, depending upon how old you are. You may or may not remember it. And I'll read from that excellent source of uh, objective objective credibility, Wikipedia. Uh, the Iranian hostage crisis was a diplomatic standoff between the United States and Iran. Fifty-two American diplomats and citizens were held hostage for 444 days from November 4, 1979 to January 2, 1981, after a group of Iranian college students belonging to the Muslim student followers of the Imams line who supported the Iranian revolution took over the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. It stands as the longest hostage crisis in record history. The last line I can't speak with, can't speak to. Uh, as far as 444 days, uh, you may or may not know that is what that was the genesis or the origin, resulted in the origin of uh, ABC News program Nightline, and that really made Ted Koppel a national news voice because he'd report every night on the Iranian hostage crisis. And obviously, it lasted for over a year. The way the story goes, it then ended. It happened when Jimmy Carter was in office. The way the uh, government media complex presented it is that Carter was weak. He was a Democrat. Reagan was uh, Reagan was voted in, and right before he was inaugurated, then they were released. So that was that was the psyop. It was presented that you know Reagan was going to take decisive action. So they the Iranians released him. So from from the U.S. context, particularly from the man in the street, Iran, you know, then in the late 70s early 80s was uh, vilified. I mean, there was massive, uh, massive popular uh, hostility felt and disgust felt in the U.S. towards Iran. But let's, let's back up. Let's back up. Nothing happens in a vacuum. In other words, that is true that you know, Iranians did take over the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Those 52 American diplomats and citizens or held hostage for a year. All that's true. And that was obviously supported, supported by uh, you know, the Iranian government at the time. It had gone back and forth, really. The Iranian government at first stopped that from happening, and then they let it happen and you know, completely encouraged it. In Iran, uh, the U.S. does not have a good reputation, to say the least. And you know, why do I say that? Okay. Let's go back years before 1979, before the Iranian hostage crisis, to understand something that was not uh, was not revealed in the U.S. till years after it happened, but it was well known in Iran for a long time. 
I'm going to read up from part of a Lou Rockwell piece from a few years ago, America, Iran, and Operation Ajax, the Burden of the Past. Uh, America's relationship with Iran has been extremely hostile over the past several decades. From the perspective of most Americans, the seminal event of U.S.-Iranian relations was the seizure of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and the subsequent holding of its staff as hostages. Although that hostage-taking was brutal and unjustified, many Americans, say make that most even today, lack a more global perspective of the history of American interactions with Persia. One of the most critical events in that relationship occurred over 50 years ago, during, now it's over 60, during the Eisenhower administration. While Americans may know little about Operation Ajax, its memory still evokes intense anger from nearly every, every Iranian. The brief version concerns the overthrow of Mohammad Mossadegh's short-lived democratic government by the CIA in 1953 and the reinstallation of the Shah to the throne of Iran. In 1951, the control of Iran's oil fields by a British company, the Anglo-American Oil Company, or AOIC, became a hot political topic. The Iranian people believed, with some justification, that the existing deal between the Iranian government and IAOC unfairly benefited the company. Mohammad Mossadegh, then a member of the Iranian parliament, took the lead in demanding a renegotiation of the pact. The masses of the Iranian people rallied to his standard and quickly made him the most revered leader in the land. The Shah, who then ruled as an authoritarian monarch, lost control of this as his previously powerless parliament took on a life of its own. And then uh, the author, Steve uh, LaTulip, goes on to quote McKay, with uh, Mossadegh leading the charge against Iran's economic minister, the Majils, that's the parliament, on March 15th, boldly nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company. On April 29th, the same Majils in parliament elected Mohammad Mossadegh prime minister. Okay, and that's, that's an important thing because a lot of the PSYOP, a lot of the uh, manipulation uh, when the U.S. overthrows governments around the world, the lie where it's in Central America or the Middle East, uh, when countries are ravished and you know, destroyed and then play states are, are set up or then exacerbated after the U.S. does that, the lie is always just for the people and it's for democracy. It's very interesting to note that I, that Mohan Mossadegh was, was democratically elected, yet he was overthrown by the CIA. While the Shah, getting back to the peace, while the Shah sat on the throne as a mere shadow, Mohammed Mossadegh basked in the acclaim of the vast majority of Iranians who, for the first time in decades, decades gave their genuine respect, devotion, and loyalty to the recognized leader. While I certainly don't condone his socialist tendencies or a seizure of the oil fields, it is undeniable by the time of his elevation to prime minister, Mossadegh had the backing of the overwhelming majority of the Iranian population. For the first time in its long history, I had a democratically elected leader. And that's the point again that I've stressed. By 1953, Mossadegh was in an increasingly difficult situation. All re oil revenues had plummeted due to a boycott of Iranian oil and the economy slumped. The Soviet-backed Iranian Communist Party was becoming increasingly aggressive 
and Washington began to worry. Iran was a vital chess piece in the Cold War, and the American oil companies had their eyes on future concessions there. Most of the decade had become an issue for some very powerful people. Eventually, the decision was made in Washington that most of the decade had to go. Brigadier General Norman Schwarzkopf, father of the Gulf War commander, and CIA guru Kermit Roosevelt, grandson of Teddy Roosevelt, president, were ordered to begin a covert operation designed to remove Mossadegh and restore the Shah to absolute authority. A complex plot codenamed Operation Ajax was conceived and executed from the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Using CIA assets in the Iranian military and various, various minor political parties, an uprising was staged. This author, uh, Stephen uh, LaTulip, He's quoting McKay again. Uh, not uh, who is McKay? He's companions. Her book. So he quotes her, and he goes on to say, uh, "Where is it? for nine hours the pro." Mossadegh Parsons had drawn to a tight cordon around the Premier's palace. Inside, the aged and always ailing Prime Minister threw a coat over his pajamas, leaped over the garden wall, and went into hiding. Forty-eight hours later, he was arrested. The brief euphoric moment when the followers of Mossadegh believed that he held Irene's destiny in his hands evaporated. The Shah, who had fled to Rome at the first whiff of gunpowder, rode back to power on the, hip, on the tip of American bayonets. In essence, the U.S., the United States had engaged in a massive covert operation designed to remove a democratically elected leader from power and reinstall an authoritarian monarch, a move which makes a mockery of our currently state desire. When I say our, let correct what the author said. A move which makes a mockery of the U.S. government's currently state desire to spread democracy in the Middle East. And this affair had several disastrous ramifications for future of American-Iranian relations. Uh, there in the article, one of the things that happened to to explain the animosity existed again uh, decades before the Iranian Iranians took over the U.S. embassy in Tehran is this: the CIA then and this the same uh, and the same pattern had was unfolding in other countries like in Chile uh, when uh, Allende, who was socialist, was overthrown, CIA coup, and they put in Pinochet. Then the CIA trained and set up secret police, and a lot of people disappeared. Same thing happened when the Shah was uh, reinstalled into power. The Iranian people uh, lived knowing family and friends disappeared due to Savak, due to secret police that were largely a product of the CIA. And uh, I've also said before, and I've said again, this: a lot of Americans are ignorant. I, I, I mean, a lot of Americans have historical consciousness or uh, historical uh, understanding for the last five minutes. And obviously, you know, the mass media, the government media complex wants that. Uh, they've dumbed us down due to Twitter and YouTube. And I'm still getting to my video tonight, though it won't be on YouTube. But uh, people forget. People just don't care. People don't know. But in Iran, again, 
the U.S. was hated for uh, basically overthrowing most of that who's democratically elected. And I'd agree, you know, you shouldn't, you don't nationalize things, you don't take over uh, property and say it's the government. Well, it's okay when the U.S. does it. But uh, it shouldn't be done. That shouldn't have been done. But the U.S. then stages a queue. You have to protect the corporate, you know, corporate powers, corporate interests, and geopolitics that are involved. And then worse yet, helps set up the secret police, which killed a lot of people. A lot of people disappeared. So that's the background in the Iranian mind. The Iranians knew when the hostage crisis occurred, the vast majority of Iranians knew all of this history. But in the U.S., that had come out years after the hostage crisis. That was that was declassified. I think someone initially leaked leaked that about. I'm not sure. I think it was an initially leak. Yes, then it was. It was an animosity between the U.S. and Iran. Really, what the U.S. Uh, the U.S. hostage crisis. said before, you know, the U.S. has attempted or has been attempting for years to either provoke Iran into a military conflict or just planning outright to go to war with Iran at some level. The video I'm about to play now, it's uh, just another 10 minutes. I'm going to break it up. It's four sections. And uh, it's from Stephen Colbert. I'm, I'm viewing it. I'm going to play it at BitChute. That's B-I-T-C-H-U-T-E, BitChute.com. Uh, I've had enough of YouTube. Uh, YouTube basically lost uh, lost its identity when it was sold to Google, and now we see uh, we see what was probably a long planned resulting just ban just massive banning, deplatforming, uh, uh, demonetizing anyone that's uh, people that are not going along with uh, you know the new world order. <clears throat> Dan Dix, uh, Pressure Truth Canada, he was demonetized. So that cost him about forty thousand dollars a year. In any case, we'll be playing this on BitChute. It goes through uh, – there's no comments from from, uh, from uh, Stephen Corbett. That's a Canadian expat living in Japan. Incidentally, I highly recommend uh, the Corbett Report. You can see his stuff at his own site, and uh, videos are at BitChute.com. But he doesn't give any comments. I'm going to play these and then break them down, explain. I'll have my own commentary as far as what they are. Uh, it's going to be four different four different people uh, that had talked openly about the reality of staging an event to cause the U.S. to go to war with Iran. Different times again. I'll I'll play I'll play the clips and, uh, and then uh, I'll give you some background. I frankly think that crisis initiation is really tough. And it's very hard for me to see the United States president can get us to war with Iran. Uh, it's leads me to conclude that if, in fact, compromise is not coming, that the traditional way of America gets to war is what would be best for U.S. interests. Uh, some people might think that Mr. Roosevelt would get to World War II, as David mentioned. You may recall we had to wait for Pearl Harbor. Some people might think Mr. Wilson wanted to get into World War I. You may recall he had to wait for the Lusitania epidemic. Some people might think 
Judge Alamein exploded. And may I point out that Mr. Lincoln did not feel he could call out the Federal Army until Fort Sumter was attacked, which is why he ordered the commander Sumter to do exactly that thing which the South Carolinians had said would cause an attack. So if, in fact, the Iranians aren't going to compromise, it would be best if somebody else started the war. But I would just like to suggest that uh, uh, one can combine other means of pressure with sanctions. Uh, I mentioned that explosion uh, on August 17th. Uh, we could step up the pressure. I mean, look, people, Iranian submarines periodically go down. Someday one of them might not come up. Who would know why? <laughs> we can do a variety of things if we wish to increase the pressure. I'm not advocating that, but I'm just suggesting that uh, it, 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 this, this is not a, a either-or proposition. Of, you know, it's just sanctions has to, has to succeed or other things. We are in the game of using covert means against the Iranians. We, we could get nastier at that. We are in the game of using covert means against the Iranians. Who was that creature? Uh, who, was, who was that person that said those things? Who was that? I will tell you who that was. That was someone named Patrick Clausen. Patrick Clausen. Uh, that was his responses to questions regarding U.S. policy toward Iran at a policy forum in Washington, D.C., and that goes back to December 21st, 2012. Who does Clausen work for? Who hosted that policy forum? The Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute for Near East Policy, which uh, would be considered, among other things, a pro-Israel, a pro-Zionist think tank. But you know, that was blatant. Uh, that was blatant. Now we're going to go to a uh, more familiar voice. It's a big nude Brzezinski, who's National Security Advisor under President Jimmy Carter. It's a big nude Brzezinski. And this was from, uh, this was broadcast on February 1st on the PBS NewsHour. Brzezinski, this was from his testimony before the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So this goes back to 2007. So, again, five years roughly before Clausen's, uh, Clausen's uh, admission, <laughs> open admission at a policy forum. A plausible scenario for a military collision with Iran involves Iraqi failure to meet the benchmarks, followed by accusations of Iranian responsibility for the failure then by some provocation in Iraq or a terrorist act in the United States blamed on Iran, culminating in a quote-unquote defensive U.S. military action against Iran that plunges a lonely America into a spreading and deepening quagmire eventually ranging across Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, you recently uh, wrote a letter to the. Okay, now it's, it's a big nude Brzezinski now openly stating that to U.S. To US Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Yeah, he's openly stating that. And the way he said to quote unquote defensive war. Uh, Again, 
this is these are things that have been stated openly for years. Before I get to the next clip, this was interesting. Someone from We Are Change confronted former Democratic U.S. Senator from Colorado, I would add, former Democratic U.S. presidential candidate, Gary Hart. Confronted Gary Hart about something that Gary Hart had wrote. Uh, Gary Hart wrote a very small piece, and this was posted. This was posted, I believe, initially in the Huffington Post, and it was reprinted elsewhere. But this goes back to 2007, again the same year that was uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski was speaking to the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, February 1st, 2007. And this short piece I'm about to read, very short, from Gary Hart, former Democratic U.S. Senator and former Democratic presidential candidate wrote that was that was posted on September 26, 2007. Okay. And this is this is what Gary Hart wrote. This was his unsolicited advice to 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 Iran. Presuming that you Presuming that you are not actually ignorant enough to desire war with the United States, you might be well advised to read the history of the sinking of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor in 1898 and the history of the Gulf of Tonkin in 1964. What were those two things, incidentally? Uh, the USS Maine, I don't think there's ever been proof positive, but in all probability that was a false flag. The U.S. said, Spain attacked that ship in Havana Harbor. And guess what? When that happened, the U.S. didn't invade Spain. They didn't go after Madrid, but they did take the Philippines, uh, among other things. And then the Gulf of Tonkin was admitted in 1964. Uh, well over 100,000 U.S. servicemen died in Vietnam War over an attack that eventually the United States government admitted didn't occur, the Gulf of Tonkin. Okay, getting back to Hart's piece. Having done so, you and he's writing this to Iran, his unsolicited advice to Iran. Having done so, you will surely recognize that Americans are reluctant to go to war unless attacked. Until Pearl, Har Pearl Harbor, we were even reluctant to get involved in World War II. For historians of American wars, the question is whether we provoke provocations. In World Pearl Harbor, uh, Yes, the attack did occur by the Japanese. The U.S. pulled out the newer ships. Uh, there was strong opposition to World War II because Americans were educated enough. They were historically conscious enough. They had enough respect and understanding of the Constitution that they knew they got suckered in World War I when Edward Bernays told the U.S. public in his propaganda pieces that that was the war to end all wars and the war the war to make the world safer democracy under Woodrow Wilson. So that generation said, been there, done that. We're not getting involved in the European conflict. We're going to go with the advice of George Washington, who incidentally said, never do that. So Pearl Harbor, the U.S. provoked Japan to attack, and they knew they were going to attack. That's why Hart would say, given historians for historians of American wars, the question is whether we provoke provocations. He uses the uh, 
first person plural pronoun we, I would say they, the government, because I don't identify with the government, I identify with our nation, but not our government, because that's not controlled by the people. In any case, getting back to Hart's piece, given the unilateral U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, in 2003, you talked to Iran, or obviously thinking the rules have changed. Provocation is no longer required to take America to war. But even in this instance, we were led to believe that the mass murder of American civilians, Osama bin Laden, was lurking literally or figuratively in the vicinity of Baghdad. Given all this, you would probably be well advised to keep your forces, including clandestine forces, as far away from the Iraqi border as you can. You might even consider bringing in some neighbors to verify that you are not shipping arms next door. Tone down the rhetoric on Zionism. You've established your credentials with those in the world who thrive on that. If it makes you feel powerful to hurl accusations that the American evil have at it, sticks and stones, etc., but for the next 16 months or so, you should not only not take provocative actions, you should not seem to be doing so. For the vast majority of Americans who seek no wider war in the Middle East or elsewhere, don't tempt, don't tempt fate. Don't give a certain vice president and uh, Hart was talking about Cheney at the time on the way out, before Barack Hussein Obama, a.k.a. Barry Shatero, was, uh, was selected. Don't give a certain vice president we know the justification he's seeking to attack your country. That is, unless you happen to like having bombs fall on your head. That was a fascinating little piece by Gary Hart. So someone from We Are Change uh, confronted Hart about this, and that's, that's, the next, uh, that's, the next video. that's the next segment in the video. You recently uh, wrote a letter to the president of Iran. Please which, talk louder. Yes, uh, you recently wrote a letter to the president of Iran in which um, you urged him to study the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which we now know was a staged event used to justify war with Vietnam. And you also raised the question, does America provoke provocation? Sir, was this not an out? Did I do that? Uh, I have the letter right here, sir, if you want to read it. I have it on me right here. Um, um, sir, I mean, that's mainstream media. It's been published in many publications. Do you deny writing that letter, sir? You said, I, I can read it to you right now. Um, okay. You said, um, presuming that you are not actually ignorant enough to desire war with the United States, you might, you might be well advised to read the history of the sinking of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor in 1898 and the history of the Gulf of Tonkin. Gulf oh, okay. I'm sorry, that was a blog on the picture's post. I did yeah. not literally write a letter. It was a mock letter. Sorry. Okay, well, uh, sir, was this not an outright threat veiled in doublespeak that the United States could stage an event to go to war with Iran? No? Then what? Well, what I was tongue-in-cheek saying was that we have an administration in Washington that is dying for a reason to bomb Iran. And so in a mock blog letter to the Iranian government, not the president, but the Iranian government, I just simply said, if, unless you people want to be bombed, you better be careful about cross-border incursions. And I think I explicitly said, keep the Republican Guard or the Revolutionary Guard or whatever it's called away from the Iraqi border I was trying to communicate to the American people what our own government was trying to plan, and that was to find a reason for bombing Iran. And I was simply saying, 
in effect to the American people through this mock letter. Um, be very careful about this administration creating a uh, USS Maine incident or a Gulf of Tonkin incident that would justify bombing Iran. That's all. That was, that was interesting. I mean, Hart, unlike other people, when uh, they get caught uh, red-handed, uh, he actually addressed it. So I'll leave it for you to decide if that's what Hart meant. When uh, when he did write that, he was correct. It was called unsolicited advice to the government of Iran, not the president. But still the thing that's fascinating in that, again, he didn't mention Pearl Harbor. He mentioned the Maine, and he mentioned the Gulf of Tonkin. And he did talk about provocation, but I'll leave it up to you to say, it, uh, did Gary Hart write that to warn the Iranians and you know, educate Americans, or was that part of conditioning to get people to accept uh, what the power brokers in D.C. think is ultimately inevitable, which is an attack against Iran? I'll leave that up to you to decide. The last piece here is uh, by with Seymour Hersh. He was being interviewed by someone who was uh, pretty much a neoliberal guy. But it was interesting because they started talking about plans that had been written up uh, in Dick Cheney, you know, from going back to Cheney, vice president's office, how uh, how to basically create a means or, a, or a, a means to justify going to war with Iran. How could that be manufactured? And Hirsch, again, Hirsch is a very, very interesting guy. Uh, he basically, when he was a young man, he became famous because he exposed the My Lai massacres in Vietnam by U.S. soldiers. But Hirsch, again, I like a lot of people. I don't, I don't know everything what to think of him. I, I can't say he's real, <laughs> 100%. I can't say he's not real. But he does report a lot of things, or a number of things, that no one else does. So... This was uh, the guy who was interviewing him was Faiz Shakir, and this was uh, this was recorded, I believe, or published on July 31st, 2008, around the same time period, when uh, he was asked in a Q&A discussion at Texas A&M, and that was part of a lecture series. Uh, and this is uh, this is what he was this uh, actually not that I'm sorry, that's uh, getting, getting ahead of myself. This was that interview just between Fayashak here and uh, and Seymour Hirsch. This goes back to July 21st, 2008. Very interesting when they start talking about Hirsch starts saying there were plans that were written up to stage an event to provoke Iran to war with the U.S. There was a bit at the end of this latest article that you wrote that I found actually most interesting in the article. It hasn't got that much attention, but I want to get your uh, take on this. And, and this relates to a story or an incident that happened a couple months ago. Many of you remember it. It was in the Strait of Hormuz. There was an incident where an uh, American carrier almost blew a couple of Iranian speedboats out of the water and perhaps would have started uh, the next war, a uh, war against Iran or potentially a World War III. Um, and it was averted. Thankfully, uh, the, at the last second, we later learned that 
um, there was really nothing to be terribly concerned about. The incident was overblown, and that there was a vice admiral uh, in charge of the fleet and, and, the, and the Strait of Hormuz who said just basically there was, there was no concern uh, that it was overblown. Well, yeah, the second part basically. He was yeah. concerned that it was overblown. He never threatened. He never threatened. And you talk about uh, this uh, vice admiral's name is Kevin Cosgrove. And in your article, you write, nonetheless, Cosgrove's demeanor angered Cheney, according to the former senior intelligence official. But a lesson was learned in the incident. The public had supported the idea of retaliation and was even asking why the U.S. didn't do more. The former official said that a few weeks later, a meeting took place in the vice president's office. Quote, the subject was how to create a Cossus belli between Tehran and Washington, he said. What you're writing there is that Cheney, there was a meeting in the White House where Cheney presided over looking to cook up the next war, a, a false war based on false intelligence. Uh, my oldest son is a uh, lawyer, and when I, I sent him the story before it was published, basically in, in a final form, just a day, and he, he wrote back and he said, you really buried the lead in this one, but Casas Valley. Um, I need presser here. Uh, anyway, there was a meeting among the among the items among the items considered and rejected, which is why the New Yorker did not publish it on grounds that it wasn't accepted. One of the items was why not every there was a, a dozen ideas proffered how to how to trigger a war. The one that interested me the most was why don't we build we in our shipyard build four or five Iranian boats that look like Iranian PT boats, put Navy SEALs on them with a lot of arms, and the next time one of our boats goes through the Strait of Hormuz, start a shoot-up. Might cost some lives, and it was rejected because you can't have Americans killing Americans. But that, that's, the kind of, that's the level of stuff we were talking about, provocation. But that was rejected. So um, I, I could understand the argument of not writing something that was rejected. Uh, maybe. I'm, I basically, my attitude always towards editors is they're mice training to be rats. So, um, but um, but you have to get you know. The, but the point is, uh, Jeju, if you know what that means, um, um, uh, silly, maybe, but potentially very lethal because one of the things they learned in the incident was the American public. If you get the American, if you get the right incident, the American public will support you know, bang bang, kiss kiss. You know, we're into it. I see more Hirsch again. Going back to 2008. Now we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to finish up that video. Those are the four pieces. And we're going to go fast forward to now, very recently. We're going to go to April 15th to U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, used to be CIA director, also for Donald J. Trump. We're going to fast forward. We're going to take a break before then. Uh, it was the KIRP radio show, Keeping It Real, with Pudgy Miller. I will be back in a few moments. KIRP radio! He won't like no memory back where he had no name. I swear 
K-I-R-P Radio! We listened to those four different segments. I gave you some background. And now we're going to fast forward to Secretary Secretary of State uh, Pompeo participating in discussion at Texas A&M University. It's April 15th of this year. In terms of how you think about problem sets, I, when I was a cadet, what's the first, what's the cadet motto at West Point? He will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. I, I, I was the CIA director. We lied, we cheated, we stole. It's like we, we had we had entire we had entire training courses. Good uh, Okay, so it's it's. Uh... It's a big joke then, Pompeo admits, yeah, CIA entire courses, uh, how to uh, basically how to lie, training how to lie. And uh, then he delivers some remarks to the media at the Department of State on June 13, 2019. 
And once again, as I've already explained, going to listen to what Pompeo says. And I believe it's a total lie, of course. But not only do we have people around the world saying there was no evidence of Zaranian mines, the captain of the ship and those on board said it wasn't mines. They were attacked by things through the air, some type of missiles or projectiles. Afternoon. It is the assessment of the United States government that the Islamic Republic of Iran is responsible for the attacks that occurred in the Gulf of Oman today. This assessment is based on intelligence, the weapons used, the level of expertise needed to execute the operation, recent similar Iranian attacks on shipping, and the fact that no proxy group operating in the area has the resources and proficiency to act with such a high degree of sophistication. This is only the latest in a series of attacks instigated by the Islamic Republic of Iran and its surrogates against American and allied interests. And they should be understood in the context of 40 years. Yeah, he was saying that should be understood in the context of 40 years. Yeah, going back, absolutely, I agree with that part. They should be understood in the context of those 40 years. Further and further back, go back to the CIA overthrowing Iran's democratically elected leader, Mohammad Mossadegh, then reinstalling the Shah and training secret police who made people disappear. So yeah, that's, that's how you should understand that attack. That's the historical context. So, to understand again, the U.S. has been talking about war with Iran for a very long time. The Iranian hostage crisis, which is still predominant in the minds of many, 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 many Americans, uh, cannot be understood apart from the context of the CIA coup d'etat, engineered coup d'etat of Mohammad Mossadegh, and then further transforming Iran into a secular police state with secret police trained by the CIA, SOVAK. Again, as I mentioned, very similar to the patterns happened numerous times. I don't know all the times happened. Also happened after the CIA deposed Salvador Allende in Chile, the socialist, replaced them with Pinochet. And then we had secret police, and lots of people disappeared. Incidentally, can that, can that show that's happened abroad? Can that happen in the U.S.? Oh, yes. Not only that, I think can, it can happen, but I think unless things change radically in the U.S., this is where we're going. You know, we, we, have, we have indefinite detention uh, of U.S. citizens. That goes back to, I forget which year, um, we had a, one National Defense Authorization Act. They threw that in. Uh, we've had kill lists, including U.S. citizens living abroad, and it could be here. No warrant. Just killed him. We had that drone attack again. It was a U.S. citizen, including his uh, 16-year-old son in Yemen, separate drone attacks. So when the U.S. government has already admitted for a number of administrations, really, W. Bush on, that they can detain U.S. citizens indefinitely, they could execute U.S. citizens without due process. That's not happening every day. But they've already set the precedent, and they already claim they can do it. And there's no, there's no outrage from Congress. There's no outrage in the courts. There's no demonstrations in the streets. So think extremely careful if you believe in this mythical idiocy 
of a war on terror, which can never be won because you can't win a war on a tactic as Ron Paul was there. I would say you can't win a war on ideology, not by literally fighting with troops. If you believe in that, be extremely careful what you want, what you wish for, because it can and is happening in the U.S. The incident with Iran, the tensions again, is an excellent illustration about how U.S. covert operations works and the underlying geopolitical goals. The U.S. plan has been for quite some time to destabilize the, U, the Middle East. I could go back to uh, the white paper that included, said we needed before 9-11 occurred, said they needed a Pearl Harbor type event to reshape the Middle East. So the U.S. has had plans for a long time to invade these countries, topple them, set new governments. And incidentally, obviously, uh, if you didn't catch the memo, it's not about democracy. After the U.S. government toppled and deposed Saddam Hussein, who wasn't necessarily a nice guy, but was a stable country, he was a secular Muslim leader, the U.S. then transformed Iraq into an Islamic Republic. 25% of the population became refugees. And if you're a Christian like me, if you believe the Bible, if you, you believe you know, an individual has to personally repent and trust the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, what's happened to the Christians, the minority Christians in Iraq who had freedom, who had liberty under Saddam Hussein? Well, where it became an Islamic Republic, uh, they didn't do too good. After the U.S. under Barack Hussein Obama, a.k.a. Barry Satoro, toppled uh, Muammar Gaddafi's regime in Libya, that's become a radical Muslim regime that's now openly trading slaves. So consider that it is never about what they say. The aftermath of war, the results are horrific. It's a lie. And what they use to get us into war is a lie. I have one more other video to play tonight. This is from Tucker Carlson. Uh, very interesting about John Bolton. Uh, one of the many reasons... Uh, President Donald J. Trump is a fraud, and he's not true. He's not an outsider. He's an outsider that he didn't run for office, but he's completely controlled by the New World Order. Said so he surrounded himself with uh, neocon scum from day one, and among the prominent scum, besides Pompeo, is John Bolton. So this is an interesting piece, very interesting piece that uh, Tucker Carlson played in his Fox News show. John Bolton. Check out this piece of tape recently uncovered in which Bolton promises that we're going to overthrow the government of Iran. Keep in mind that this was filmed long before the Iranians shot down a single drone. I have said for over 10 years since coming to these events that the declared policy of the United States of America should be the overthrow of the Mullah's regime in Tehran. And that's why before 2019, we here will celebrate in Tehran. Thank you very much. In other words, last night has been in the works for years. John Bolton is a kind of bureaucratic tapeworm. Try as you might, you can't expel him. He seems to live forever in the bowels of the federal agencies, periodically reemerging to cause pain and suffering, but critically, somehow never suffering himself. His life really is Washington in a nutshell. Blunder into obvious catastrophes again and again, 
refuse to admit blame, and then demand more of the same. That's the John Bolton life cycle. In between administration jobs are always pushy think tank posts, paid speaking gigs, cable news contracts. War may be a disaster for America, but for John Bolton and his fellow neocons, it is always good business. The only, the only uh, thing I disagree with there, what Tarka Carlson said, part of that segment is this. You don't blunder into war. I mean, he was saying it was planned. Um, these people, it's highly calculated what they want to do and when they do it, the way they do it. It's not a blunder. See, if it was a blunder, again, and people just didn't admit it, then the people in power that didn't blunder or would realize, would realize it and they would change. But the fact that you see there's, there is a strong pattern, a very consistent strong pattern of covert operations designed to provocateur conflicts, false flag attacks uh, resulting in major wars. Uh, it's not a blunder. It's not a blunder. I hope you understand what is at stake. I don't want the U.S. further transformed into a police state. I want to turn back the clock in a sense. I think we can restore the republic. Uh, it can be done, but it's not going to get done if the U.S. continues to pursue false flag attacks, to continue to pursue illegal wars, and help to stabilize and destroy other countries. The way the U.S. gets into war and the reasons are never what they say. It's not just the U.S., but obviously I'm talking from a U.S. perspective because I'm in the States and my audience is largely Americans. The way they get us into war is almost always a lie. The results of the war are almost always a lie. I hope you don't get suckered this time. I hope there's enough uh, moral sensibility left in the so-called left and in the so-called right that people won't get fooled again. But I don't know. But you see what I presented tonight. Uh, the U.S. issue with Iran is horrible. There's a lot of blood on the hands of the CIA. There's a lot of blood on the hands of multiple administrations, Democrat and Republican. And they want more blood. They want this conflict with Iran. And ultimately, if they get their way, uh, the last country they would topple would be the House of Saud. That would be the last piece in the puzzle, Saudi Arabia. But that's not going to happen until they get to Iran first. And I hope it doesn't happen. You've listened to KRP Radio Show, Keeping Real. Pudgy Miller, once again, I thank Pudgy Miller for giving me uh, the use of his platform at least once a month. appreciate that. I will be, will be back hopefully next month. And next month, August, the, the last Friday is the 30th, one day before the end of the month. Thanks again for listening to KRP Radio Show. Have a good night. K-I-R-P Radio!